You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news and stories from the 55 UEFA countries. On this episode of The Sweeper, we look at our favourite stories from the first half of March, including the Norwegian shootout that snowballed, some strange sideline antics in Serie B, and a deep dive into Gibraltar. Hello and welcome to The Sweeper Podcast, the home of random football stories from across the globe that you won't hear elsewhere. My name is Lee Wingate and I'm joined in the virtual studio by my usual co-host, Paul Watson, who once became, I believe, the youngest international manager in world football. Am I right on that? Sort of. This is, this is the difficult bit. Sort of. I coached the island of Pompeii in Micronesia and it's one of four islands that make up a nation. So technically, you could say it was like a de facto national team at the time because we couldn't merge them all at the time. But I tell people I was an international manager anyway. Very few people are going to be able to correct me. It sounds good for the CV, doesn't it? If you're coaching a state within a nation, what kind of games did they even play? One of the big problems was we, we couldn't really play against anyone. The problem at the time was that there weren't matches between those four states. That only actually came around a little bit later. So at the time, the biggest problem for Pompeii as this island was it had no one to play against. So we used to play against a team that we called All-Star Eleven, which is a very polite way of saying anyone else on the island that we could find <laughs> to play against, it, which included me. So I, I don't know if this has happened very often. I used to play against my own team while coaching the team that I was playing against. <laughs> <laughs> that is a pretty unique situation. For the benefit of our listeners who really aren't all that familiar with where Micronesia is. So it's a group of 600 or so islands in the Western Pacific. What on earth prompted you to go out there in the first place? The nation is the Federated States of Micronesia. So it's Micronesia, the region, which comprises quite a lot of different nations. But Federated States of Micronesia has four main states, which obviously have other islands inside them, but four main states, which are Pompeii, which was the one I was on, Chuk, Koshrai, and Yap. And so those four, even though they're separated in total from one end to the other by almost 2,000 kilometres, have to become one nation to be recognised in the eyes of FIFA. So that I was just one of, yeah, I was on Pompeii and we were one of those four. And that was in 2009, 2010, I was coaching there. And back to the why on earth part. It's a bit idiotic, but it was, I was 25 and I comprehensively failed at being a footballer and even failed at being a sort of semi-pro footballer and... The conversation was that one that you have in the pub, which is why can't we play for England? Well, we're nowhere near good enough. What if we could play for, you know, Andorra? What if we could play for? And we went quite logically to the bottom of the list and we were still nowhere near Bhutan standard or Montserrat standard. So then we found this non-FIFA list, which is everywhere that isn't even recognised by FIFA. At the bottom of there was Pompeii, this island. And the Wikipedia page said they were recognised as the weakest team in the world because they'd never won a game of football of any kind. And so at that point, this stupid idea, we sent off an email and then weirdly enough, the head of their FA had just left and moved to London. So he said, <laughs> I'll come meet you in London. We had a curry with him and he said, look, 
boys, I kind of know what you're up to. But honestly, if you wanted to go over and set up the team again, it's sort of fallen into disrepair. You know, be my guest. I'll help you in any way I can. And I think he thought we'd go away and say, oh, sorry. But instead, no, 18 months later, we were there setting up and coaching this sort of de facto national team because, yeah, as I said, it was one of the four states. Do you remember when we did the very first podcast episode that you featured on? I read out a snippet of your Wikipedia page and I'm planning to do so again now. Mm. This one in specific reference to your playing ambitions in Pompeii. (laughs) (laughs) So the Wikipedia page, you might know what I'm about to read out already. It says, unfortunately for Watson, playing for a team in the Federated States of Micronesia would require them to first qualify for naturalization under the country's strict nationality laws by marrying local women, learning a local language and living in the country for five years. I mean, which of those three is the biggest obstacle? Well, this is, <laughs> I was going to say, do you want to guess which one of those my wife had the, took exception to? Um, <laughs> it was it was funny because obviously the idea, yeah, came about with this silly sort of, can we naturalise? And funnily enough, it would have been one of the hardest places on earth to naturalise. Become Getting a Micronesian passport is yeah, nigh on impossible, as you can tell from that. So, yeah, it, the idea was quite quickly scrapped. I did fancy I'd pick up the language, but I spent two years there, and I reckon I know about eight words, and most of them are unrepeatable <laughs> in Pompeii. <laughs> so, no, I don't think I would have succeeded on any of those levels, actually. I remember when we spoke for one of the first times off air, and you told me about, I think it was a situation where you were literally painting the pitch the lines mm. on the pitch in the baking sun and you got completely sunburned. Have you got any anecdotes or maybe a bit more about that or any other anecdotes that you think that the listeners might like to hear from your time in Pompeii? Well, the funniest thing I would say is I, so I went out there thinking my professionalism would, would win the day. I was like, you know, go out there. And I, I studied every single thing I could on coaching. It was a real cliche. I was basically reading, inverting the pyramid on the plane, Ted Lasso style, but I really was genuinely thinking I'll go out there and wow them with this professionalism. And the more uh, professional I was, the less people liked me and the less actually players would bother showing up. And what turned people in my favour, apart from when I yeah painted the pitch and got sunburnt and lost all my skin, the other <laughs> thing was we got this group of players who were picked from the league that we set up. So we, we had a league. We went to little communities on the island and said, can you set up a team? One of which was the Mormons. So, yeah, we knocked on the the Mormons door and said, you know, can we convert you to the world of football? And they didn't actually send a team. But we had a group of teams and then we picked the best Pompeian players and we trained them. And training was fine, but it was a bit stilted and players weren't really responding. And I thought, God, I'm not being professional enough. But sure enough, actually, what turned it was we had a bonding day. It was sort of it was called a, a picnic. And we went out to this little island, one of the outer islands, went out on a boat. And basically what consisted happen was every single substance imaginable in Pompeii was consumed you know it's not just booze and marijuana but actually what they like to use the most is sakao which is like a, a sort of carverish kind of drink that just intoxicates you but numbs you and betel nut which is a chew that's like this kind of harsh acid chew that turns your mouth red and they obviously thought I was going to distance myself from them or almost kind of shy to show me but as soon as they got there they started offering me bits of these these drugs effectively and I thought well yeah why not give it a go and it was actually this incredibly drunken stoned debauched weekend of just all of us yeah getting in various states out of our minds that after that all the players seemed to warm to me and then would come to training and then I'd get invites to you know all kinds of things and 
I think it was actually the less professional side of me that, that meant I could coach them. Listeners might be wondering why we've kicked off the show talking about your managerial days in Micronesia. But there's a reason for that, isn't there? Because this summer there will be a futsal tournament contested between the four Micronesian states which you mentioned. Why mm. is that significant and what should we know about it? So it's the first ever futsal competition for Federated States of Micronesia. We've moved towards futsal because it's one of the wettest places on earth. So all 11 aside pitches flood all the time. So you can barely ever plan outdoor football. But also the flights between islands are incredibly expensive. So it's very hard for the islands to compete against each other, even though they're technically the same nation. So with futsal, we, we kind of killed two birds with one stone. We get to play indoors, and so the weather is not a problem anymore. And also the flight prices are cut into tiny chunks because your squads are so much smaller. So the idea is to have a national championships, which will be the first proper national championships, including Koshrai, the really small island, which only has 6,000 people, where they've never had a football team, but they're really keen to set one up. They've never played football, never played futsal. In fact, they didn't even have a football on the island when they entered the competition. They just really wanted to see if they could play. So this would be a big moment for the nation. But also we're hoping for the region generally where football development is really difficult. There's no funding. FIFA aren't providing any funding. OFC has been unattainable. There's no money coming in. So the idea is to set up a sustainable championship so they can hold every year that becomes a kind of hub of football and futsal activities annually and for players to look forward to something i'm not a big football shirt guy i've got a lot of friends mm. out there who are big kit geeks but i can't really say that i'm one of them and i think the reason for that is because football shirts have become so expensive haven't they i, I remember once upon a time back when i was a kid they cost 30 pounds for a football yeah. shirt and now some of them are between 80 and 100 i find that a little bit obscene to be honest but ahead of this micro cup, this futsal tournament, Sting's Prowear has come up with some absolutely amazing kit designs for the teams of the four Micronesian states. And not only are they stunning, they also cost £30, the price of what kits used to cost back in the day. And all the profits go to helping players make that travel to the event, which you just mentioned there is quite difficult with the lack of funding. So if you want to check out the designs, go to our Twitter page, because at the moment, at the time of recording, at least on the 15th of March, we're running a shirt competition for two lucky winners to get the Micronesian shirt of their choice. We've got pictures of all four of them. What's your pick of the bunch, Paul, and how can people purchase the shirts if they want to? So it, this sort of breaks my heart. I feel like a real traitor. But I think Koshrai is the pick. It's this incredibly beautiful shirt. And it has the Koshrai white eye, which is a bird on it that's unique to Koshrai. And it's just, it's a stunning shirt. Stings have done a, a brilliant job. When I knew we wanted to have shirts for the teams and that we wanted to help fundraise with those, I got in touch with Ernie Stobbs, who runs Stings, because he had made the two value kits for the 2018 Connie Football, Football Cup. And they were just amazing but i also knew that he would get behind this idea that all the profit would go to the teams and the, and the traveling players so yeah we've, we've got these beautiful shirts and we decided 30 pounds was just right because we want people around the world to wear micronesian football shirts in fact i was talking to the guys in chuk one of the islands the other day and i was telling them we've got people in brazil we've got people in france belgium and holland wearing chuk shirts and it really means a lot it, it sort of brings them into that football community and they find it really motivating to think that there's someone out there wearing your shirt. So, yeah, please do get in touch, as Lee says, like all the profit goes to the teams and getting these te these players over to Pompeii for this tournament this summer, which will be the first experience 
any of these players have ever had of a futsal competition. Will you be going to the competition yourself? I will. There's a caveat here. So I will. I've sort of fenced off a bit of money that I'm going to do it. It's not cheap to go from the UK. But if we run short on the players' money, then I'll donate it to a player instead. Because it would feel pretty self-indulgent <laughs> for me to show up, but Yap only have three players. <laughs> wouldn't, be, wouldn't be particularly helping anyone. Maybe it would further my chance of finally getting that international cap. <laughs> Playing for Yap. But yeah, no, I hope to be there. I really do. I really hope that you do end up getting that cap one day, Paul, because it, it clearly does mean a lot to you that you're prepared to move around the world for it. So fingers crossed <laughs> for you on that. If you are intrigued by Paul's journey to become the world's youngest international manager, sort of, he has written a book all about it called Up Pompeii. I looked through the overwhelmingly excellent Amazon reviews for the book this morning, actually, and one reviewer wrote in saying it's positively begging to be turned into a Hollywood movie. I take it that hasn't happened yet. It's not quite, but there is a feature film in development. It's just been stuck in that sort of development situation where it can go year after year and someone says, oh, wouldn't it be fun if, you know, if we put this character in or this character in and all the finance just bubbles around it. it yeah, it's never quite happened, but I have had some intriguing actors linked with playing both me and Matt, my friend who did the project together. And you can't help but feel flattered until... <laughs> until people say well of course you know we're not trying to play the real you we're just trying to play someone who who you know people want to see on screen so uh yeah <laughs> maybe sort of crying to my wife saying yeah they think um you know they think andrew garfield would be a good me and, and then <laughs> execs are just saying no we just want to find someone who's good looking who could be a version of you that people actually want to look at <laughs> for an hour and a half <laughs> the, the best note i ever had i was on a production meeting and you do get some quite funny and brutal ones uh, and they obviously hadn't taken into account that this was the real me they were just talking about the project saying the problem we've got is we don't believe this guy the lead character paul we don't believe someone like that would exist and i say well like gently saying yeah i, I did and they're saying yeah yeah but we don't believe someone like that would have a girlfriend <laughs> and I say, oh thank you thank you very much <laughs> Totally brutal feedback. Well, we'll end the Micronesian segment there. If you do want to buy the book, though, you can find it in paper form via Amazon or any high street bookstore and on e-readers. So do go and get your copy of Up Pompeii. We'll be back in a minute where we'll jump from one M to another, from Micronesia to Moldova, and also talk about Norwegian snowballs, Italian bicycle kicks and the CONCACAF Champions League. Welcome back to the Sweeper podcast for a section that I've named in my notes, Random and Bizarre, which I suppose could really apply to any of our content. I want to start this segment by returning to Moldova and in particular Transnistria, which we talked about last time with your visit there, Paul, a few years back. And in the context also of Sheriff Tiraspol's progression to the last 16 in Europe. But I was doing a bit of digging the other day, and I found that there's actually another team from Transnistria in the eight-team Moldovan Superliga. Were you aware of that? And did you come across them on your visit? I don't think I do know that. Well, I didn't until the other day. They are called Dinamo Auto, and they are located in Tiraspol, about three kilometers south of the very lavish Sheriff Sports Complex where Sheriff Tiraspol play their home games. This is in much more modest surroundings. It really looks like you'd expect a stadium in the Moldovan Super League to look like. And the reason that I 
sort of became interested in them is because I saw they were bottom, rock bottom of the Moldovan Super League with zero points, even though they've won one game and drawn three. And it's yet another case of match fixing in Moldova where they've had a six point deduction and not been able to pick up any more than the six points they had deducted. (laughs) (laughs) So I looked into them a little bit more and I saw that their next games, their upcoming fixtures in the league are all against teams in the second division. So that got me thinking, well, well, how is that possible? They're in the Moldovan Super League. Why are they playing second tier teams? And that got me into a a rabbit hole, Paul, an absolute (laughs) rabbit hole of what the hell is going on with the Moldovan Super League format this season. So I thought I would do my very best to try and explain it to you and our listeners who are interested. Please do. Let's see if it's comprehensible. There are eight teams in the Moldovan Super League and they all play each other home and away with the top six going into a final phase and the bottom two joining a separate final phase with four teams from the second tier. In the second tier, there are two groups of six. The top two teams from each group join those bottom two from the Super League and play in a final phase of their own with the other four teams from those six team groups in the second division joining to form one eight team division. Are you with me so far? I'm clinging on. I'm holding on. <laughs> Just about clinging on. So this this six team group between the, the bottom two in the Superliga and the top two in each second division group, they all play each other with the team that finished first getting an automatic spot in the Superliga for the next season. But this is where it gets complicated because the other five teams in that six-team group that did not get that automatic place will go into a quarterfinal draw and play knockout football for the remaining place in the division. But there's only five teams there. Yeah, there's only five eight. of them. <laughs> yeah. So the other teams come from... Remember I said that the teams in the second division that finished third to sixth in their group go into one eight-team division. The bottom two in that eight-team division go down to the third tier... And the top six play off for the remaining three places in the quarterfinal. So you have first versus sixth, second versus fifth, and third versus fourth. And that's where you get the remaining three teams that join those other five teams for the quarterfinals and the right to eventually get a place in the Moldovan Super League. And I think, Paul, it's at this point that I need to check in with you and find out if, <laughs> if you followed all of that and if I'd explained that in a remotely comprehensible way. Look, I'm not putting any blame at your door here. I think it sounds like someone trying to explain the plot to something like Inception, but without you having seen <laughs> any of Inception. Like, I, I, there were points there where I was following, and then suddenly it just went off into a very odd direction. Who would come up with something like this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I feel like there may be some listeners who are pressing that 30 seconds back button on their podcast app too. <laughs> or 30 seconds forward. <laughs> yeah, potentially. But I think one of the reasons why this really sort of grabbed my attention is because I think it's unique in Europe as being the only top flight where teams play league games against teams from other divisions during the season. I know you have at the end of lots of seasons, like in Germany, you have the team that finishes 16th will play against the team that finished third in the second division in like a two-legged end-of-season playoff. I know you have that. But this is an actual league group, and I can't think of any other league in Europe, let alone anywhere else, where that's the case. No, it's bizarre. When you first said it, I thought they'd just become very defeatist and just book themselves into the division below. But uh, yeah, I've never heard of anyone 
doing anything similar to this. And I guess at least, if nothing else, it keeps the season interesting. I suppose that's maybe part of the reason they've done it, is to keep it interesting, if you can work out what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I remember you mentioned on the last podcast where we talked about Moldova that they have problems with match fixing, match manipulation there. And this is the second season in a row that a team has been deducted six points for match fixing. So this season, it's Dinamo Auto. Last season, it was a team called FC Floresti, who finished rock bottom with minus six points and didn't actually end up completing the season. So I I had a look at their stats. All season, they scored 12 goals. And 12 goals, Paul, is fewer than Piazid Zwolle managed to score in one match in the Dutch second division recently, isn't it? It is. It is, and a good link. There was a 13-0, which you don't see every day. So yeah, Zwolle put 13 past Den Bosch in the Dutch second tier. And I think I kind of wanted to mention it just because it feels like every single time we record one of these, something crazy is going on in Holland. So perhaps if anyone who follows sort of Dutch football can just let us know what's going on in Holland at the moment, because yeah, 13-0 is a score that I have not seen very often. I think also they were 4-0 up after something like 12 minutes. It was definitely one of those starts to a game where you think, that is a tough one to come back from if you're Den Bosch. But yeah, Den Bosch are not even bottom in that league, I think. They're in relegation mire, but they're not even bottom. So absolutely bizarre scoreline, really. Yeah, I think I read something like that is the record score or the, the joint biggest win in a Dutch professional game in the top two tiers, because I think it gets to semi-professional when you go below the second tier in the Netherlands. And the previous record was also a 13-0 win. I think for Ajax against VVV Venlo a few years back. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, I, I think you're right because I saw that it was Venlo who lost the 13 I Actually, I know some people in Venlo, so I was going to mention it to them. Uh, it still rankles with them. But yeah, 13-0 is the score you don't get in a league match very often. You perhaps won't be surprised to know that Den Bosch replaced their coach a couple of days later. I don't think there's much coming back from a 13-0 defeat, is there? And, and there wasn't for him. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to take the positives, isn't it, really, from that? <laughs> you can't even... I, I think they even maybe were seven in the first half, six in the second half, so they can't even do the sort of, you know, we held them in the second half. It was nil-nil in the second half sort of thing. Yeah, there's not much left, really, is there? I think, obviously, managers, when they're in the midst of a relegation battle, they're under an enormous amount of pressure. And that got me thinking back to one of my favourite Premier League stories a few years back. Do you remember that rant that Nigel Pearson had in the 2014 to 15 season? This was the season before Leicester were champions. Yes, what when he called everyone ostriches. Yeah, I think the line was, you know, you're burying your head in the sand, you're, you're like an ostrich. And, you know, he went off on this very bizarre rant. And I mean, ultimately, letting out the aggression seemed to work for him because Leicester stayed up with seven wins from the last nine games. But I think this links on nicely to the next story I'm going to talk about, which is another manager in the midst of a relegation battle, just letting out his emotions in totally unbridled fashion. So that's what I want to talk about next in Serie B, the Italian second tier. And I want to talk about Cosenza. So they are, I think, third bottom in the second tier in Italy at the moment. And they played a game the other day against Spal, who you talked about recently as the club that fired Daniele De Rossi on Valentine's mm. Day. That's right. That's right. Cosenza won this game 1-0, so a real relegation six-pointer. But they were hanging on for the win towards the end. 
And even though there were five minutes of stoppage time, Spal had a corner in the 97th minute. They defended this corner. It was one of those real like headers that go a long way down the pitch. And the ball went towards the dugout. And do you know what the Cosenza coach, William Viali, did next? I, I have seen this. It's absolutely amazing. He runs on each other. So the final whistle must go uh, through context. The coach and the subs will like sprint onto the pitch and delight. And he overhead kicks the ball. But like a proper, you know, <laughs> well, he doesn't get a great contact on it. But I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> I mean, as you say, the pent up emotion. I think because Cosenza have been bottom. I think they've been bottom all season until this point. And they look like dead and buried. And so this win must have just given him <laughs> adrenaline rush like nothing else. But yeah, it's an astonishing moment. <laughs> and the fact he botches it, really, it's not a good overhead <laughs> kick. Almost just makes me love it more. I've watched it about a hundred times. Yeah, I, I properly cracked up watching that. It was, yeah, it, I struggled to <laughs> struggled to keep it under wraps for a few minutes. Honestly, that Serie B relegation battle is going to be quite something. You've got Venezia in there risking going straight back down. Brescia in the mire. Italian football is brutal. And that thing of going from Serie A to suddenly Serie G and, you know, you're you're basically in with the, well, yeah, you're in with some quite big clubs, but the relegation slide that happens in Italy can be just unlike anywhere else. Clubs going from hero to zero within seasons. So, yeah, in the, the emotions down there, I, I love it. It's one of my favourite leagues, actually. At the other end of Italy, both in terms of the country and the Serie B table, is a club called FC Sudtirol. And I also wanted to mention them in this segment because they're really on a remarkable journey at the moment. They're currently, I think, fourth in the table at the time of recording. I had a little look. They are the youngest club in the top two tiers of Italian football, only founded in 1974. And they have risen from the seventh division in 1996 to the verge of a second successive promotion now to reach Serie A for the first time in their history. And I did a little post about this on Twitter the other day. And we actually had a Roma fan commenting saying, I remember when we used to play these guys in like preseason friendlies. And now you're telling me they're on the verge of Serie A. And I just thought, you know, what a wonderful story that is as well. Yeah. And a part of Italy where there's not a sense of there being a football, a massive football heritage, which is very rare for Italy. I mean, there's almost none of Italy doesn't have a club in it that a fan who's watched Italian football for, for decades would, would remember being in Serie A. But yeah, there's never been a big football heritage up there. And it's kind of amazing to see them get where they've got to. And as bad as the downwards momentum can be, the upwards momentum also can be quite a thing in Italian football. I remember when Chieva Verona, which were you know, nothing more than a village team, went on that incredible rise and got themselves into Serie A. And then for a short while, I think they got themselves into Europe, got themselves into the UEFA Cup for a while, you know. And this was a club that was a village club with a little bit of money behind it. But yeah, it was a Forest Green Rovers style club. I don't know if that means much to people outside of Britain, but, you know, a small club with quite kind of wealthy owner, but, you know, still a very small club, finding themselves playing against like Juventus. And that's what we're looking at here is, the idea that a club like Sudtirol could play against Juventus is fantasy stuff, really. Yeah, I also think they're interesting just beyond the football pitch because they're from, as you say, this northernmost province of Italy where actually German is the most spoken language. So I'm thinking this could be the first time that you get a club playing in one of Europe's top five leagues who come from a region in which the main language of the country is not the most spoken language in the region. It does get difficult, though, because when you enter Italy, it depends what you count 
as languages and dialects. I mean, obviously there's so many, I guess, actually languages. So in Sicily, the clubs, you could say a Sicilian club speaks Sicilian as their primary language. It depends what you count. I suppose for it, the language of another nation. Yeah, because it's yeah. this region bordering the south of Austria. So not all that far from where I am in Vienna. It's a very beautiful place. So if you do get the chance to go and visit and check out FC Sud Tirol in the process, then, you know, would highly recommend. We have got a couple more stories in this segment, both related to cup competitions. Why don't you take us on a little trip to Central America to talk about the CONCACAF Champions League? Yeah, and we're talking about Haiti again, and we're talking about Haiti in a very good light again, which is really nice. Not so nice for Austin FC. So the CONCACAF Champions League, which is, I mean, basically the whole, anything CONCACAF does is a form of organised chaos. There's always something going wrong. There's always mayhem. But what happened here is that Austin travelled to Haiti, very strong favourites, expected to dispatch this club, Violette, and instead lost 3-0. And the pick of the goals was one of the strangest own goals you could wish to see. It was The game was already dead, really. It was 2-0 to Violette, and Austin scored an amazing own goal. It was one of those ones where a player is sort of... The ball's ricocheting a bit, and there's a header saved, and the ball kind of comes down. The player's obviously thought to hoof it over his own bar or wide, but has just belted the ball in his own net. And it really put the sort of final seal on this crazy night. And so this was a real high. And you thought, well, what an amazing underdog story that this, this team from a place of enormous unrest at the moment, a really hard place. Stories of the players like gathering together while gunshots are going on outside after training, stuff like this going on. They then obviously have second leg to play of this tie. And that's where it starts to go wrong because there are rumours that a number of VLAT players won't be able to get visas to the US because of the US border authority being scared they'll try and claim asylum or, you know, and will stay in the US. And as we're recording, I believe it's still unknown exactly how many players have travelled, but I think enough have travelled that the game will be on. But yeah, the details are a little bit sketchy about exactly who was denied visas and why. And again, it just reflects badly on CONCACAF and, you know, the team could have this, this amazing sort of fairy tale could be endangered just by yeah paperwork and admin and a really sad sort of way for it to end if it does sort of seems like a bit of a shame that they haven't picked a neutral venue to play that game at then if it's going to be so difficult for all of the players to get visas i suppose then the argument would be that home advantage is quite a big factor and they did get home advantage you'd had to i guess play both over neutral territory i don't know i suppose there must be precedents for this around where players are traveling to places where they can't get visas but you just would think that a governing body would be able to look and see this coming and work something out a little way in advance but yeah i really hope they get at least a fair crack of it because it was an amazing amazing result yeah best of luck to them we'll jump from the Concacaf champions league now to the norwegian cup which is where i've got the final story for this segment and i think it's an interesting competition because i think it might be the longest lasting domestic competition in europe this season and when i say longest lasting i mean it started on the 18th of may last year and ends on the 22nd of may this year so it's actually over a year wow. long how's that possible yeah. surely that means it has to start before they finish the last one Well, I think it it might do because you get the lower league teams that are generally in the preliminary rounds. And then, you know, generally speaking, they're not towards the latter stages of the competition. So that might explain some sort of overlap there. But we had some fourth round ties taking place this month. One of them was between second tier club Start and Tromso. 
Start are based in Kristiansand on the southern tip of Norway. And as most people will know, Tromso is up in the Arctic Circle, right at the very top of the country. So that was a 2,800 kilometer round trip for the Tromso players, which is no mean feat, of course. And they won 5-4 on penalties after a 1-1 draw. The thing that stood out about this game to me was that during the penalty shootout, the first Tromso player that stepped up to take a kick... At the moment he struck the ball, you see this missile fly onto the pitch and land somewhere near the penalty spot. But all it is is a snowball. So a start fan has tried to put the Tromso player off by lobbing a snowball at him at the moment he takes the penalty, which I think is just some of the loveliest, most natural shithousery out there, really. Oh, <laughs> lobbing a snowball. But also, what an arm. I mean, how far has that snowball gone? It's almost commendable, right? <laughs> Yeah, with great accuracy as well. It didn't put him off because the player scored the penalty. But what that did actually lead to is the referee switching the end of the pitch that the penalties were taken. So he moved the penalty shootout to the other end of the pitch, which is not something you see that often, mid-shootout. And Start were very angry about that and a couple of other things that took place in the match. So they were considering filing a complaint at the result. Because of three things, the relocation of the penalty shootout without giving a prior warning, a dubious red card for a start player when a Tromso player was booked for a similar incident and start having a goal disallowed in the second half. So they ultimately decided not to file a protest, but those were the, the, the things sort of overshadowing this game in the Norwegian Cup. I hate to say it, but it does sound like the whole thing snowballed a little bit there. (laughs) <laughs> I apologise, I apologise no, no apologies but needed I think fair enough with the switching of ends that is a that is a slightly dubious because obviously you do get an advantage and that will have been pre-decided by the, the coin toss or whatever so fair enough, the other two they've just cobbled those together to make a <laughs> to make a sort of list haven't they if you start abandoning results just because they're disappointed at a foul in the second half then I think football's got bigger problems yeah agreed That'll do for part two anyway. We'll take a short musical break and then we'll come back to talk about the first two domestic champions across Europe this season and cast our eyes around at some of the more enticing title races that are still on across the continent. You're listening to part three of the Sweeper podcast, where we talk all things title races, both those that have already concluded and those that are hotting up nicely. Let's start with some very premature domestic champions. Where do you want to go first, Paul? Do we go to Malta or Gibraltar? Let's start with Gibraltar. Let's start with Gibraltar, where um, Lincoln Red Imps have slightly anti-socially won the title there. (laughs) Very, very early. And with this like dazzling finish to the season, they've sort of just sprint finished the season whereas Europa who are second have really dropped off a cliff I think they haven't won in four games and you know basically it just ended very quickly that title race yeah it wasn't all that long ago that I remember tweeting about the fact that we had three teams level on points at the top of the Gibraltar national division I think there was Bruno's Magpies Europa and Lincoln and it's quite rare to see the opposition just drop off in the way that they have here. Because as you're right, Bruno's Magpies were very much in the mix too. They only won something like one of their last five as well. So you have this situation where, yeah, what went from looking like one of the most nail-biting title races in Europe just suddenly was resolved quite quickly. But, you know, they are Lincoln Redems, obviously, for people who vaguely follow Gibraltarian football, will have seen them popping up. I think probably best remembered 
for beating... Did they beat Celtic? Am I right in thinking they beat Celtic in the, one of the legs of a two-legged match a few years back? So, you know, they are very much like a giant of Gibraltar in football. But yeah, really nice to see a club compete in Europe from Gibraltar and do well at it. It's just a bit of a shame maybe that Gibraltar in football seems to have a bit of a problem with how sustainable clubs are on the whole I think it's quite a tough place to run a football club from what I can see I actually went to Gibraltar last May to go to the Rock Cup final and came away thinking it you know it's a very unique place I mean it's a small piece of Britain at the foot of Spain for a start it's UEFA's smallest member state by surface area I think it's only six kilometers squared or something so it's it's a tenth of the size of San Marino so I think that puts it into perspective (laughs) yeah if they make, um, make some really look like giants. <laughs> I've got a few observations from my trip to Gibraltar that I thought I'd just share at, at this point of the podcast. So I think quite a lot of people will know that all 11 clubs in the Gibraltar League share the Victoria Stadium, which is mm. located literally just across the border from the Spanish town of La Linea de la Concepcion. But what people might not know is that the runway to Gibraltar's airport runs parallel with the border which means that when a plane is coming into land, you literally can't access the stadium from the Spanish side. You can cross the border and then you have to wait for the plane to land, the barriers to go up, and then off you go to the stadium. I've never heard that. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> That's amazing. It, it really is another world. Uh, I was also looking, how do I buy tickets for the Rock Cup final? And there was no information about tickets at all. And that's because you don't have to buy them. It's just free to go to Gibraltarian. Yeah, and I don't think it's televised unless that's changed. I don't think there's any TV coverage. So this was one of the problems clubs have got is that how do you make revenue when you can't charge people to come to your games and there's no TV deal, as far as I'm aware. And also, as you're saying, there's one stadium. I think they have to train in Spain, don't they? I mean, there's not facilities for teams to all be training during the week either. And that's quite unique. Yeah, well, there's lots of Spanish players in the league and a lot of them are based over the border in Spain. So that wouldn't surprise me about the training thing. From a logistical point of view, that would make sense. There's another club further down the league in Gibraltar, Manchester 62. I don't know if you've heard about what they're doing with headgear at the moment. No. Oh, actually, yes. No, I think I did. But yeah, please, please do fill me in. I I heard a vague thing about this a while back. Yeah, so they're all wearing this, you know, Petr Cech style headgear. They've become essentially the first professional club in Europe, in the top flight anyway, to wear protective headgear. So all of their outfield players wear them. And it is to protect against concussion and neurodegenerative diseases. So you see all of their outfield players all running around with this black headgear on. Well, fair play to that. I mean, that's amazing for them to be leading the way on something like that. You wonder if that'll be that'll be everywhere before, you know, too long. And it will have all started in Gibraltar, which is quite something. To go from Gibraltar now to Malta, I'll just round that one up quickly. Hammer and Spartans have wrapped up their second title in three years after beating their closest rivals for the title, Jazeera United, at the weekend. I'm sure their president will be delighted, or, or will he not be? That's that's the question. <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling me about his, his ill-fated attempt to play for the team, trying to register himself. And yeah, I guess he must be disappointed because now he knows he could have got himself on the field. It wouldn't have done any damage. But on a more serious note, I think it's quite a good sign that Hamron beat Levski Sofia last year. So, you know, it feels like there's possibly some development in Maltese football in that they are Hamron are building a kind of squad that maybe could get some results in Europe, which would be quite good for Maltese football, I imagine, as a whole. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think Jazeera United got a couple of draws as well in the qualifiers last summer. So perhaps things are on the up in Malta. Are there any title races that have yet to conclude across Europe that are really catching your eye at the moment or interesting you in some way? Oh, that's a question. Yeah, well, you know how invested I am in the San Marino title race where Cosmos, it's the team that finished bottom last season, are attempting to do think something that has never been done before which is go from bottom to top because there's no relegation in San Marino so I'm pretty invested in that title race they've actually dropped off top but they have a game in hand Trepene now top they're a more familiar giant as it were of San Marino football but Cosmos have got the game in hand and, and still in the mix going for that yeah unprecedented bottom to top how about you though you got an eye on any good title races well there are a few going on I mean, there's quite a lot that are interesting in some way or another, but I'd have to say at the moment, one that stands out for me is North Macedonia, where the team that are currently top are Struga, who were founded only eight years ago and have since risen up from the fourth division, made the European debut last summer and are currently top by a couple of points. So that one stands out, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty, pretty decent effort too, isn't it? And Greece, I think. Greece is also looking interesting. You've got four teams, Pauk, AEK Athens, Olympiakos and Panathinaikos, all with a realistic chance of winning that title and all relatively close in terms of points. So I guess those would be my two picks. But I would just like to chuck in an honourable mention for all the league leaders across Europe who are on course for a first ever top flight title. You've got Farrell Constante in Romania, Rakov in Poland, Dats 1904 in Slovakia, Swift Hesperange in Luxembourg, Lahn in Northern Ireland, Athletic Escaldes in Andorra, and Struga in North Macedonia, who I just mentioned. So good on them for an amazing effort so far. And another quick mention for Moldova, because that's currently the only league in Europe where two teams are level on points at the top. Because what I neglected to mention earlier is that the points are reset heading into the final phase in Moldova. So everyone starts on zero again. And so currently you have, I think it's Sheriff and Petrocub on three points each. I think that's probably it for our segment on title races. So we'll leave it there for today. But we'll be back in another couple of weeks to round up all the action from the second half of March. That episode will be a little bit different as well because it will cover the March international break. Actually, that is a question for you, Paul, before we go. What international football stories might we have our eyes on and and might we include in the next episode? Is there anything at the moment? Oh, that's interesting. I, I've got eyes on a bit of a unique one. It's not quite international, but it's the Murati semi-final. So this is the Channel Islands football competition and it's Alderney versus Jersey. And what's really exciting is Alderney have never won for something over 100 years now. They've never won a game in the Murati, but they always get this semi-final against either Jersey or Guernsey, which rotates every year. So that's the one that I've got my eyes on. That's March the 25th. I think so by the time we go out next time they could have made a little piece of history or much more likely they won't have (laughs) I'm sure we'll also be talking about San Marino's what is it 125 126 match winless run as well I feel I I feel like I got so excited about them possibly breaking that and now that they're back to playing against European opposition it just feels really demoralizing (laughs) not a chance Well, all that to come in the next episode anyway. In the meantime, please do take some time to review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
For podcasts without any backing or major networks behind them like ours, reviews are incredibly important in growing the show and bringing in new listeners. And it would be a fitting moment for you to leave a review on Spotify because after several months of trying, we finally had our request to change the podcast category from American football to football approved. So big moment over at Sweeper HQ here. <laughs> Super easy to leave us a review on Spotify as well. You simply select how many stars you'd like to give us. Hopefully five, but hey, that's up to you. And that's it. No need to write anything at all. If you're on Twitter or any other social media platforms, please do take a moment to retweet or share the episode. I think that's probably been vital in getting the listener figures we have been in the last few episodes. So thanks to everyone who's done that. And the same goes for spreading the show via word of mouth too. If you've got any mates who might want to find out about the Norwegian snowball missiles, a Micronesian futsal tournament, or the runway delaying access to Gibraltar Stadium, please do tell them about us. It will surely be a big help. But for now, it's goodbye from Paul and I. See you next time. You've been listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast. If you like what you've heard, come and follow us on Twitter at SweeperPod and leave a review for us on your podcast platform of choice. Special thanks go to the Gentleman Creatives Design Agency in Vienna, Austria for their amazing graphics and logos. You'll find them too if you come to our Twitter page. Hi everyone, Lee again. If you've made it this far and listened all the way through the theme tune, then a little update for you as a treat. In the time between the recording and editing of this podcast, Violette of Haiti have pulled off the shock and knocked Austin FC out of the CONCACAF Champions League. What a story that is. Paul tells me there are a few players missing, but they mostly had their visa requests granted. So well done to Violette of Haiti. That's all for now, though. I promise we'll see you again in a fortnight's time.